Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. I'm Keith Monconi. On this week's show, we're going to keep it focused squarely on those presidential and legislative elections. Uh, of course, by now, uh, we've all seen the headlines that came out of Saturday's races. And we know about the DPP's landslide victory in both of them. Uh, but now that we're all clear on the numbers for this new government, it's time to start answering a different set of questions. That being, uh, beyond the numbers and the names, what really changed on Saturday? You know, going forward, what is this shift really going to mean for Taiwan's politics? Well, to help us get a handle on that, we have on the show today Dr. Nathan Bado. He is a researcher for the Institute of Political Science at Academia Sinica, where he focuses on Taiwan's domestic politics. He joins us right now by Skype. Uh, Dr. Bado, thanks for joining us. That's nice to be here. So Tsai Ing-wen and uh, the DPP certainly riding high on that victory. Uh, I think that the margin of that victory was even a bit wider than the DPP itself was expecting. Uh, so they're going into this presidency with uh, what could be called a mandate uh, behind them. Uh, and the first question I, I want to put to you is, uh, is that going to be an unqualified mandate? Are they really going to have uh, some free reign here? Or or are there some constraints that uh, we should still uh, be thinking about? Well, obviously, she, she goes in with uh, the presidency and uh, a single-party majority in the legislature, which are the two most important centers of power in Taiwan. Uh, but there are a lot of other things that will constrain her ability to make big changes. Uh, she has to worry about how any kind of policy changes will be uh, received in, in Washington, as well as in China, as well as in the rest of the world. She's also constrained by um, the financial world, uh, how businesses will react. Uh, and by, you know, the, the possibility of more social protests. So she doesn't have free reign. Uh, another thing is that the, she's constrained by the bureaucracy here, which still has some of that authoritarian legacy and is still more dominated by the KMT or by KMT supporters or sympathizers. And, and so it, she, has, she faces a whole set of constraints beyond the uh, formal political constraints. So, so she doesn't exactly have free reign to, to do anything she wants. And let's dwell now for just a second on the outcome of those legislative races. Of course, uh, the DPP won 68 seats, a very solid majority. The KMT were beaten back quite a bit. Now they're in the mid-30s. Uh, so a decisive victory for the DPP and the legislative yuan as well. Uh, how is this new legislative yuan going to function? I mean, even when the DPP was in the minority, they uh, still managed to play something of a, a spoiling role. They uh, were able to block a lot of the legislation that the KMT wanted to see put in place. Uh, now that the KMT is in the minority, are they going to want to or be able to uh, play a similar role? Well, the, the KMT has... has 35 seats in the legislature, and they're going to be a significant presence. The one reason that the, the DPP in the last term was so successful in blocking a lot of uh, KMT initiatives is that the KMT was not a unified uh, party caucus. Uh, at, at this point, it looks as if the DPP is still uh, quite a unified party caucus, um, they're, they're all following their leader, and everybody likes to follow a winner. Uh, and as long as Tsai Ing-wen maintains her personal popularity, her public popularity, um, she will be a strong leader. 
uh, and so in the in the short term, we should expect uh, that that we'll see a, a unified DPP caucus, and therefore they'll they'll be able to pass most things that they want to pass. The KMT can be a force for uh, balance, um, but it has to figure out how to cooperate with its with itself. Uh, the KMT, after this victory, is a fragmented and traumatized party, um, and they're going to spend the next several months trying to figure out who they are and what they stand for and how to go forward. Uh, and I don't know that they are ready to be an effective opposition party uh, right now or in the next several months. All right, so something to watch uh, going forward. Uh, now I want to address one of the uh, main dramas of Election Day that kind of unfolded uh, as the day went forward, uh, that being the Joe uh, Yu incident. Uh, I think a, a lot of our listeners will uh, be familiar with uh, the Taiwanese K-pop star that uh, was apparently forced to make a video apology uh, for her waving of an ROC flag. Uh, this incident touched off huge anger here in Taiwan. It was palpable uh, throughout Election Day. Uh, and that has led to a fair amount of speculation that perhaps it actually had some influence uh, on Election Day itself. I even spoke to a number of uh, DPP officials who told me that you know they were worried about turnout uh, and this perhaps helped uh, push some of those voters that maybe uh, wouldn't have uh, taken that train trip or bus ride out to a polling station. Perhaps it pushed them uh, to actually do that. So that's the line that they're giving. Uh, but I want to get your take on this. Uh, do we really have any way of knowing whether or not this had some influence on voter turnout and the way that uh, the election day unfolded? Um, we, we really don't. Uh, this is all speculation, and it's it's reasonable speculation. But there's really no evidence um, that either way that it made a difference or that it didn't make a difference. Um, in Taiwan, uh, we're not allowed to do exit polling, uh, which would be which would give us some hard data to to, to suggest some some things made a difference or not. But we we don't have that data, and so. Uh, this often happens that something will happen on election eve that people say then uh, really affected the outcome. And uh, whether it's uh, Sean Meehan being shot in the face in 2010 uh, or with the assassination attempt on President Central Arabia on election eve in 2004 or uh, uh, Lu Xiaoyi kneeling down in support of Su Zhentang on election eve in 1997 or this this event this year, these are all things that people say have really changed the outcome the next day, and uh, there's just no way to know how big that effect was. I would assume that it's it's reasonable to assume that uh, in some of those legislative races that where they were decided by a, a few a few hundred votes, that yeah, that's probably had some bearing on 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 those outcomes. But we really just have no way of knowing for sure. Now, staying with those returns uh, from Election Day itself, uh, of course, one of the big winners on Saturday night, uh, in addition to the DPP, would be the new power party. Uh, they got five legislative seats. Uh, of course, they're one of the uh, spin-off political parties that came out of the Sunflower Movement. So a very good night for them. 
Uh, but it was a bad night for the Taiwan Solidarity Union. They actually lost all of their seats in the legislative UN, uh, so they've been pretty much wiped off the mat. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, how the third parties fared that night, uh, what was behind uh, the success of the NPP, and uh, more generally, what can we expect from this uh, kind of changing face of uh, third-party politics in Taiwan? Well, as concerns those two parties in particular, uh, they were they were fighting for the green vote, uh, and they were actually trying to take votes out of the DPP pool. And I think what happened in the last week was the DPP uh, made a very strong uh, sent a very strong message to their their supporters to vote for the DPP and not to vote for uh, the one of the third parties. Uh, it was one of Tsai Ing-wen's last big three messages, along with uh, prevent vote buying and make sure you go back to vote. And then the third message was, and make sure you vote for the DPP on the party list. Don't split your vote. Uh, and so I think she effectively pushed the, the, the party list vote for those two parties way down. And what that tells me is that uh, the New Power Party and the PSU really don't have very strong cores of of support by themselves. They're not unique uh, vote bases. They are. They they try to borrow support from the DPP. The three New Power Party candidates who won in the districts uh, basically won in the same way that every DPP candidate won. They they campaigned as being supported by tying one and uh, opposing the KMT and, and their their local campaigns were run uh, by a lot of DPP figures uh, and they looked basically like DPP campaigns in every sense of, in, in, in every sense. So the what what I learned from this campaign is that those third parties on the green side really are not that significant. Uh, even though the, the new power party will have five seats, it, it doesn't have its own independent support base, or it doesn't look like it, does. it has its own independent support base to me. Uh, on the blue side, you, you saw a surge in support for the new party. They went up to 4% and almost passed the threshold after having very little hint of having support. The MKT, the Mingguodang, didn't, uh, they only got 1.6%, which was a pretty miserable showing. Uh, and, and the PFP got a solid 6.5%. Of those parties, it looks like the, the PFP, to me, looks like they have a fairly consistent uh, vote base. And all the others uh, look like they were mostly dreaming uh, in the same way that the green parties, the green third parties, were trying to uh, pick up on uh, some of the the DPP's support, I think those the the, the blue s- the small parties, other than the PFP, also looked like they were trying to borrow votes from the the KMT, uh, but they were far less successful in that. All right, so that's uh, going to be one of the question marks going forward is uh, whether or not these parties really uh, will go out on a limb to kind of define their own brand. Now, the last thing that I want to touch uh, on with you today is uh, the issue of gender in this election. Uh, Of course, uh, the fact that Taiwan now has its first female president is something that got a lot of attention, uh, not just here in Taiwan, but also around the world. 
Uh, another important thing to point out is that in the legislative UN, uh, the number of female legislators is now at an all-time high. So I'm curious to hear your take on uh, what these gains uh, that we're seeing right here uh, say about politics in Taiwan and uh, Taiwan's democracy. Yeah, so we're all focusing on the, the, the fact that Taiwan has a female president, which is uh, very significant. Of course, Taiwan is not the first female president, even in Asia, but she is the first female president in, in Asia to not come from a political family. So she didn't inherit her power. And in Taiwan, that's not that unusual. There are a lot of powerful women who didn't inherit their power. Uh, so former Vice President Annette Liu uh, was not from a political family. Uh, Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Chu is a very popular politician and perhaps on the short list to be the premier. Um, also didn't inherit her power. She's not from a political family. And uh, the, the erstwhile KMT presidential nominee, Hong Xiu-Zhu, who is the, the outgoing vice speaker of the legislature, also didn't come from a political family. So Taiwan is not unique in that regard. So that's, that's a very important thing in Taiwan's political world, is that women can rise to positions of power uh, without inheriting that power from a husband or a father or some other man in the family. But beyond that, uh, it's, it's, it's even broader than that. In the legislature, Taiwan will now have 43 women out of 113 seats, and that's uh, 38.1%. And in a global perspective, if you look at the, the world of democracies, that puts Taiwan 10th in the, in the world in terms of the percentage of women in the national legislature. Most of the, the top 10 countries are in Northern Europe, and then you have a, a couple in Africa, and Taiwan is the first among democracies in Asia, far above uh, other democracies like Korea and Japan. And if you want to think about countries that have a high percentage of women in the national legislature and have a female head of government, now you're talking about a very select group. Uh, basically, you're talking about Norway, Germany, and Taiwan. So Taiwan is now a, a, a leader in uh, gender equity. But even more than that, Taiwan has also shown a commitment to a different kind of uh, diverse repre representation. Uh, so this, this year we'll have a, high, uh, a new high in uh, indigenous legislators. In addition to the six legislators elected from indigenous districts, there will also be two more indigenous legislators elected on the party lists. Uh, which puts Taiwan up to 7.1% of indigenous legislators. Uh, and remember, the indigenous voters only make up about 1.5% of the electorate. So Taiwan's choosing to overrepresent them at a very, very significant rate, which is unusual in the world. In most places where they have uh, special uh, rules set out to uh, ensure the representation of minority groups, the, the effect is usually to make sure that minority groups are represented at their level in population, to make sure they're not underrepresented. Taiwan's chosen to overrepresent indigenous people, and by quite a lot. So this commitment to diversity uh, is really, I think, one of the hallmarks of the, the new Taiwanese democratic identity, I guess. Uh, and it reflects the, 
the the commitment to a, a pluralistic society, and it's really quite one of the quite attractive facets of Taiwanese democracy. Indeed, and uh, you know, w- whatever side of the political divide uh, you may be on, uh, certainly something to be proud of, right there. Well, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up there. We have been speaking today to political scientist Dr. Nathan Bato of Academia Sinica. Dr. Bato, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And for those looking for uh, more political analysis, do make sure to check out Dr. Bono's blog. That is Frozen Garlic. Just Google it and you will find it. An absolutely excellent source for all things Taiwan politics. Can't recommend it highly enough. That is it for the show, though. Uh, Thank you for listening. As always, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's program. Easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. You can tweet at Keith Menconi. Send me your thoughts there. Or why not? I'll shoot out my email as well. You can email me, keith at icrt.com.tw. Would love to hear what you have to say. For ICRT and Taiwan Talk, I'm Keith Menconi. See you next time.